0: So Welcome, everybody. Uh, I'm glad to see that you're not, I'm not the only one who suffers from withdrawal symptoms. <laughs> it looks a little bit like a big gathering of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, who are all waiting for getting the next kick. Um, we're here to talk about the implications of Brexit for the UK economy. I'm, you can't hear me? It is working. Perhaps my voice is just too low. Can you hear me now? So my name is Walter Scherkle. I'm a professor of political economy at the European Institute at the London School of Economics, and it's my pleasure to chair tonight's event. Where we have three eminent speakers, well known public in that whole debate. Uh, if you want to tweet or whatever one does with these Twitter hashtags, it's the hashtag LSE Brexit. Um, the whole event is hosted by the European Institute and the School of Public Policy in collaboration with the program, the UK in a changing Europe, or a changing UK in Europe, whatever. Um, we have <laughs> as the first speaker, Professor John van Reenen of our own uh, Land School of Economics. He's the Ronald Coase Chair in Economics and School Professor, so more than any ordinary professor from the Department of Economics. He has held previous positions, among others, at the MIT Sloan School, uh, and he was the director of the Center for Economic Performance, a research outfit at LSE. Uh, He has been a senior policy advisor to the Secretary of State and Health, and his work, especially at the firm level, about innovation, labor markets, and productivity is is world-known. then we have Dr. Gerard Lyons, who is a leading international economist and was the economist of the LEAF campaign, if one could say that. He's a chief economic strategist at the Wealth Manager Net Wealth and sits on the board of the Bank of China. He's on a number of other advisory boards, Warwick Business School, and also at our Grantham Institute on Climate Change and the Environment. Um, then we have Vicky Price. She is a regular on our panels, a chief economic advisor and board member at the Center for Economics and Business Research. She held senior posts in business but also in government. Among other things, she was the joint head of the UK Government Economic Service. And she has now a number of academic posts, fellow and council member of the UK Academy for Social Sciences and many others that take too long to talk about. So without further ado, I would like you to welcome with me our distinguished panel, and then John van Rijn will start.
1: Okay. Well, thank you very much for inviting me to uh, talk about Brexit economics. Um, uh, as, uh, as our chair said, um, I spent about 13 years here as the director of the Center for Economic Performance, and, uh, in 2013, when David Cameron announced that Conservative Party policy was to hold a referendum on being in the European Union, I kind of knew that this was going to be one of the defining issues of our generation. So I put a team together here at the LSE and internationally to look at lots of aspects of Brexit, uh, particularly looking at the economic impacts of that and you know the next 3 or 4 years we published a number of reports and papers and you know as I as I'll show you you know the, what we found was very much in the consensus of what uh, almost every every other credible uh, analysis has found of Brexit which is going to be costly to the british people uh, for leaving the European Union. Now, as we publish some of these things, um, some of the uh, chaps that you can see here, Mr. Johnson, Mr. Gove, etc., weren't overjoyed by it. In fact, we had the famous quote from uh, Michael Gove saying people in this country have had enough of experts Facts, reason, all that old fashioned nonsense. And um, on the few days before the referendum, when I issued a kind of joint statement with the two other leading think tanks, the economic think tanks of this country, the IF Institute for Fiscal Studies and the National Institute, also you know, reiterating whatever else you might think about Brexit, it was going to be economically costly. Uh, Michael Gove then made another statement comparing us to Nazi scientists persecuting Einstein you know, ganging up against the uh, the holder of truth, in this case him, and, uh, you know, having this kind of strange economic groupthink against him. So when the Minister of Justice calls you a Nazi, that uh, might be time to uh, get out of town. So I did my own personal Brexit soon after this to uh, MIT. <laughs> so let me tell you, uh, you know, a little bit about what the cost... So, you know, it, it, this is actually extremely simple. You know, the medium-term cost of Brexit, you know... Hardly requires a lot of thought to kind of work out the fact this is going to be costly. So the bottom line is, no matter what, how you look at the harder of the Brexit, the bigger the falls of the real income of, of British people. So I'm taking one example here, which is from the Independent uh, think tank, UK and Changing Europe. Um, they are supported by people like Tom Sampson, who is a professor here. Um, so, the UK and Changing Europe estimates, by in the medium term, 2030, 2035, that um, the lowest cost uh, will be a Norway-type of deal, a soft Brexit. Norway is in outside the European Union but in the single market. The biggest cost to average national income will be uh, trade under, well, WTO rules, the hardest Brexit, something like 8.5% loss. And uh, the Johnson deal, which is not too far off a very hard Brexit, something like a 7% loss of uh, national income. So, you know, all of these estimates, you know, all credible, this is one sort of estimates, but all credible estimates are negative. Some are smaller than this, some, like my own, are larger than this. Um, But clearly there are going to be costs. Now, the the differences in the exact amounts that people estimate reflect different methods and different assumptions. So some people take kind of explicit theory-based kind of models. Um, more other, other kinds of uh, other kinds of analysis is try to use kind of uh, simple statistical models, but no matter how you look at it, there are going to be uh, very large costs. And in fact, it's rare in economics to get such comprehensively consistent negative results from a wide range of uh, different approaches. So um, is, uh, there's a slide missing here, which uh, I don't know where it's gone. But the you know the the basic story is very simple, and it's the kind of following that you know one thing that we've learned from thousands of years of human history is that trade uh, happens mostly with our closest neighbors. So, you know, interestingly enough, that is also true today, even in a world of services, face-to-face interactions remain very important. So the amount of trade, this is sometimes called the gravity equation in international trade. It's one of the most uh, robust relationships. So you trade most with your closest neighbors. If you put up trade barriers with your closest neighbors, then that means there's less trade and that means that people are going to be poorer. And, of course, you know, that sometimes there's cost to trade. You think about integrating with China, that, you know, you can see that well, there might be benefits, there's costs. Integrating trade with countries who are similar to you in income is actually the most beneficial thing. It actually creates um, the, 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 biggest, the biggest kind of effects by expanding the market, giving incentives for innovation. So Brexit is costly primarily because it means that there will be an increase of trade costs, with our closest neighbors. This is a mixture of um, tariff barriers. But even without tariff barriers, the most important thing is there will be a number of non-tariff barrier trade costs which increase. So those non-tariff barriers are things like regulatory divergence, checks and rules which happen, customs checks which happen across different countries. So those are going to be things inevitably which are going to go up with Brexit and will inevitably uh, mean there's, there's kind of greater costs. So it's actually, very, it's going kind to of a very simple story. So, as I said, it's rare in economics to get such comprehensively uh, consistent measures through a wide range of different methods. Um, you might ask, you know, how uh, how big have the costs been so far? Well, you know, of course, Brexit hasn't yet happened um, so far, but the expectations of what will happen after Brexit affects some behaviour today in two ways. First of all, since the UK economy is likely to be poorer. Um, you'd expect to see a drop in sterling, and that's exactly what happened. You know, hours after the first results came in, there was a dramatic fall of sterling, which meant that inflation rose, which meant that people were worse off. Secondly, there's also low investment due to um, falls in expected market size. And assessments of the kind of current costs of national income are around about 2 to kind of 3% due to the referendum. Um, you know, and you can get that whether you compare that to other countries or model-based predictions or compare to predictions uh, before um, if Remain had won. Um, here's one particular example of that. This is the most simple one from uh, some analysis by Chris Giles of the Financial Times. This just looks at the kind of growth before and after the Brexit vote comparing the UK to... Um, the Eurozone and, uh, and the United States, you can see a pretty similar trends beforehand, but afterwards Britain has had slower growth compared to the European Union and also compared to the United States. So just to give you some idea about what that is, that's about kind of two Boris Busses worth of lost uh, income thanks to, thanks to Brexit compared to the Euro- Eurozone. So, you know, what I've talked about so far is the kind of certainly bad cost of Brexit. In addition to those kind of certainly bad costs, there's also an uncertainty effect. So a lot of my research has been on looking at uncertainty and the stalling effects that can have. Um, two things on uncertainty. Uncertainty won't be resolved for many years. trade costs are very complex to do. We won't get an easy deal at the end of this year. But even if um, uncertainty suddenly disappeared... The boost to this would actually only be temporary as the kind of negative long-term effects are much more important. So rather than this old tired trope of the Nike swoosh, which is the belief that there might be this temporary fall due to Brexit and the subsequent increase, this is going to be a dead cat bounce there'll be a little, little, if uncertainty is resolved, there'll be a big improvement, then there'll be a slow, continued deterioration due to um, the fall of trade costs. I should say, you know, the the fall of trade is one aspect of this, but another aspect of uh, the cost that this will be will be falling foreign direct investments. And, you know, the reason for that is that many companies who come to Britain to try and uh, set up shop, whether it's Japanese car factories Uh, trading, building cars with the rest of Europe, or American banks coming to the City of London and getting passports to do business in the rest of the European Union. Um, Having uh, regulatory divergence, making it harder now to do that kind of thing, will discourage foreign direct investment. And this is further part of the kind of cost of uh, having Brexit. So how um, good or bad have economists' forecasts been? Um, You know... The the kind of medium long-run analysis that I mentioned, I think it's worth bearing in mind that that type of analysis is fundamentally, I think, a much more robust thing than trying to do short-term forecasts. Short-term forecasts are really not very much to do with economics. They're much more to do with kind of, you know, statistical guesswork. But the kind of analysis which is trying to compare Britain within and without the European Union is based on these different, much more robust methods. We don't know what's going to happen with artificial intelligence and Bitcoin and everything else. But what we can do is try and parse out the particular effects of increasing trade costs with the rest of our European neighbours. And so those, those type of analysis, that's in short, those kind of long run, analysis, I think, are a much more uh, robust type of thing to do. It's a bit like doctor's advice. The doctor can't tell you if you take up a a 20-cigarette-a-day smoking habit whether that's exactly when that's going to give you cancer or whether you're going to die. But what the doctor can tell you is that taking up 20 cigs a day is not actually going to be good for your health. And that's the kind of uh, equivalent advice that the longer-run analysis does. Nevertheless, we can look at some of the short-run analysis. So how much, how well or badly did the short-run analysis do? Well, um, this is the Bank of England's analysis. So if you look at um, 2019 from the perspective of 2016, the Bank of England pretty much got it spot on, in fact. They were only about a 0.1, 0.2 percentage point out in terms of the forecast, of the size of the UK economy. The the OBR, Office of Budget Responsibility, were a little bit too optimistic by half a percentage point. The kind of uh, private sector consensus was a little bit too pessimistic by 0.3%. The only group who got it completely wrong... Well, the group called Economists of I which I believe Jared was a co-founder of, so I'm sure he'll have some uh, comments on that, absolutely uh, exaggerating the benefits of Brexit uh, by today. Ooh. So I think that's telling me I'm almost out of time. So in summary, you know, Brexit is bad news for the UK and the EU and the world economy. It's a robust variety of approaches, the British people will be and already are poor due to Brexit compared to continuing membership. But I just want to, you know, these numbers, that, you know, they are very anodyne numbers, you know, 7%, 8%. But, you know, in practical terms, what does that mean? It means that there's less money than there would be for medical staff in, in hospitals, so more people are going to be dying due to that. More people will be waiting and wasting lists in pain. There's less money to, um, for the police force and the criminal justice system, so more people will be victims of crime. Those victims of crime are less likely to get justice. There's less money for schools and education, so more kids, especially in disadvantaged areas, will end up with worse teaching, scar them for their lives, and uh, aid this kind of this poor social mobility we have in this country. So, you know, the economic gap is bad. But, you know, those other types of things, the damage to our politics, the damage to the moral fabric of the UK is much worse. So I actually think, although the economics is is relatively clear, the real damage is actually much deeper than that. Thank you very much.
2: Uh, Good evening. Uh, Great pleasure to be here. Thank you for the kind invitation. Uh, Just to clarify, um, the chairlady said I was uh, the economist for the Leave campaign. Just to maybe highlight the background to the formation of Economists for Brexit, it was about two days into the referendum campaign, it became clear that Leave was not going to be fighting on the economy. So um, about 16 of us met um, eight of us publicly could align with Economists for Brexit, and we formed Economists for Brexit uh, in terms of the campaign. should be said that the forecast taken was one of the forecasts of one of the members. We were all from different organisations. One could easily have taken Roger Bootle's forecast or my forecast, and you would have found they've been spot on in the last few years. But there it, there it goes. But I think it's important to stress... How has the economy actually done in terms of the last few years? Um, Project FAIR, as it was called at the time, talked about the fact that there could be 500 to 750,000 job losses within a couple of years of a vote to leave. The economy, though, just to cite the figures, has gone from, at the time of the referendum, having 31.75 million people in work to now having 32.9 million people in work Over the last year, the number in full time employment has gone up just under 350,000. So it shouldn't have been a surprise to economists before 2016 that the UK was one of the most dynamic and flexible economies around. But it's not just been in terms of the jobs picture that the economy has done relatively well. Um, Probably the most positive thing I felt post election, post referendum, was the decision of all the tech firms or the big tech firms to proceed with using London as their tech centre outside of Silicon Valley. And they've invested very heavily. If you've gone around King's Cross, Camden Town, you will see that. And that, in turn, has contributed to a sea change in expectations in the financial sector in the City of London over the last few years. Back in 2016, the mood then in the City was that London would lose out if there was a vote to leave. That opinion is not, no longer the consensus view. In fact... Helped by tech firms coming here, London is seen as being far ahead in terms of fintech, and indeed is recognised as remaining the financial centre of Europe. At the end of the day, of course, where financial firms stay depends on where clients want to do business and will be impacted by what the regulators decide. So we still have one or two things to play for. But last week it was announced that there were 1,441 EU-based firms, as of last October, had applied to set up in London. Most of those did not currently have a presence here. So basically, lots of things have actually turned out far better than you would be led to believe, if you listen to one side of this campaign and this debate. But, of course, uncertainty, as has been outlined by the previous speaker, clearly has an impact. And we've seen investment suffer, hardly a surprise, given the lack of political consensus over the last few years. And one of the big questions this year will will be, how does investment move in the future? The UK is doing very well in foreign direct investment, third after America and China, but then the weakness of the pound, which I think is a welcome development, makes the UK very attractive. But what do we need to do from here? The UK is a very imbalanced economy, not just London versus the rest, urban versus rural, coastal versus inland areas. In fact, coastal areas are the most deprived areas within the United Kingdom, so place really does matter. But there are other imbalances, skilled versus unskilled. All of these need to be addressed. Now, the important thing to stress is that, obviously, leaving the EU is not necessarily easy. It will be easier now, given that there's a political consensus, but still a challenge. At the same time, there's lots of things that the UK needs to do now, quite frankly, that it should have been doing anyway when it was in the EU. But to make a success in the future, we need to get three areas right. Our domestic economic agenda, our relationship with the EU, and our position with the rest of the world. Each of these are important in their own right, but all of them interact with one another. It's important in having a sensible future working relationship with the EU that covers not just trade, but security, defence, and a whole host of areas, that we do not tie our hands on the other areas, namely our domestic policy and our global agenda. Hence, the UK needs to leave the single market to basically allow sectors of the economy that need to diverge, to diverge on regulations, while at the same time, clearly, as we would want to see in autos, pharmaceuticals, maybe one or two other areas, as much regulatory alignment in those sectors. But the important thing is that 80% of the UK economy is service-orientated. The single market never really worked properly in services. So our domestic agenda and leaving the EU and leaving the single market come together. At the same time, in terms of our global relationship, it's important to be outside the customs union in order to be able to cut future trade deals with the rest of the world. And indeed, many of those issues were outlined quite clearly in the referendum campaign. When it comes to the domestic agenda, some of these things we should have been doing anyway, but now there's a sea change in opinion, and we will be focused, I would argue, as we're seeing at the moment, less initially on the regulatory realignment and more on maybe uh, old-fashioned Keynesian economics, infrastructure spending, but at the same time it's going to be linked to boosting innovation, encouraging investment, and getting the incentives right certainly eventually on tax and regulation. In terms of the rest of the world, I think it's important to stress that the EU is the slow-growth region of the world economy. Since 2016, it should be stressed, the UK has grown at a faster pace than the major euro economies. Indeed, last week, the International Monetary Fund, despite Brexit, pointed out that they expect the UK to exceed those major euro-area economies, both this year and next. And we should remember that in the then-Prime Minister David Cameron's ill-fated attempt to come back with a good deal in 2015, it was quite clear that the future direction of travel of the EU was towards greater political union, and it was quite clear that non-euro economies would be secondary in line to euro economies. The future direction of travel of the EU is an important factor that's not really received as much attention in the last few years. And unfortunately, at its core, is a very unstable euro. Now, it could be the case, as Chancellor Merkel pointed out last week or the week before in an FT interview, that the chance is there for the euro area and the EU without the UK to address some much-needed areas. But when it comes to the UK, it's not just the domestic agenda, it's not just our relationship with the rest of the world, given that 90% of growth, according to the European Commission, is due to come from outside the Western Europe area in the next 20 years, but also at the same time, as we'll see over the next nine or ten months, whether we can actually forge a sensible future trade relationship with the EU. On trade, it's important to stress how the Treasury has changed its tune in the last few years. Maybe this is the second aspect of Project Fear. They basically said that leaving, if we had a WTO, would be worse than if we had a free trade agreement, would be worse than if we had an economic area agreement, and would be worse than staying in. They've since abandoned their gravity model and replaced it with a general equilibrium model. They didn't really explain why, apart from the fact that the gravity model they were using came under lots of criticism. But... I'm not going to argue about that. It's more that when they came to the new model, the general equilibrium model, they basically had some key underlying assumptions that really did not hold up under scrutiny. For instance, friction costs. They assumed that friction costs in the UK would hit GDP growth by 1.3%. Yet the same customs relationship between the EU and Switzerland had an impact there of minus 0.1% a factor of 10 less. There are one or two other aspects in it. A free trade agreement with the 10 largest economies will only boost UK GDP by 0.2%, whereas the same impact for the 10 economies with the EU would boost their GDP by 2%. So the Treasury basically came out with lots of figures that has not have not really held up under scrutiny in terms of research from Cambridge or other universities etc so the point is it's a more opaque area than one is led to believe but the important thing is that if we are leaving the eu as we will this friday then it's important to recognise that the main aspect is in terms of sovereignty And indeed, students in the room will probably be able to go back to read Gate School speeches in the early 60s or Ben Shaw Gold in the mid-70s to recognise how important this underlying issue is. But at the same time, it's not just how we leave, it's what we do when we leave, which is where the economics kicks in. And it's important to actually recognise the need to actually make sure we have a sensible future relationship with the EU but that it doesn't tie our hands on either a domestic agenda or our relationships with the rest of the world. And in that context, it's the changing, growing global economy that I think presents great opportunities for the UK. It's the ability to start addressing domestic imbalances that provides great opportunities for the UK. And I think if we have a sensible, economically driven future relationship with the EU, then that too will be positive for both the rest of the EU and ourselves. But as we've seen in the last few years, politics can often result in too many hurdles, particularly in the near term. Thank you for your time.
3: Thank you. you. Um, Some very good points made by Gerald uh, and, of course, uh, by John before, and I have to say that I agree with John. It's quite interesting. Uh, This whole Brexit thing was meant to unite us, of course, remember? Uh, And uh, just before I came, I thought I would just uh, Google the latest information on the economics of Brexit. Uh, And uh, the first thing that came out was economists for Brexit. Uh, So I thought, well, let me just uh, remind myself who they are, because, of course, I know Gerald is. uh, So that, uh, you know, I'm well aware if any mentions are of them. And for those of you who might want to try and Google it... uh, I found that, and and, and of course, uh, there we we, we were. Um, uh, Gerald's name came up, uh, Patrick Minford's name came up, and pictures, and as you went further down, John Van Rienen's name came up. uh, And as I went even further down, my name came up as economist for Brexit. So we have achieved it somehow. Uh, to unite our, our, our views, supposedly, despite the fact I wasn't aware of that, and I'm sure John wasn't either. So, uh, but that's what seems to come out. It's a terrible picture, by the way, if you were to Google it and see, uh, and I don't know why it's still there, but there we go, of me, I mean, not Gerald, of course. Um, so uh, I was quite encouraged by that. And in fact, to tell you the truth, uh, quite a lot of what Gerald said about uh, where policy should go in the future, It was quite correct, and this is exactly what we should be doing. The real question is, why were we not doing this before? It's got absolutely nothing to do with Brexit. This rebalancing of the regions, this not forgetting what's happening in the north, this perhaps looking at infrastructure spending a bit uh, better, not necessarily going for some of the big projects, but certainly looking at the cost-benefit a bit more, Um, looking at what's happening to inequality uh, in the economy, uh, looking at the fact that we are here now, after all those years of fantastic uh, growth in employment, as we've been hearing from Gerald, and still um, hourly pay uh, and earnings are below in real terms where they were before the financial crisis. So what exactly have we achieved except creating loads and loads of quite poorly paid jobs when some of the highly paid ones, uh, in fact, went down? And it is quite interesting also to, to think about what happened to the economy since the referendum, uh, the interesting thing is that right at the beginning, 2016, uh, trade was picking up quite substantially everywhere, and everyone was incredibly optimistic. If you read then the IMF uh, forecast of the economy, we were going back to where we were before the financial crisis in terms of gro- growth nearly 4% per annum. They were forecasting 39 and so on. Um, and indeed, for one year it looked like it was possibly going to be attained. So, 20, late 2016, 2017 looked really good, where both emerging and developed countries were uh, increasing their, their trade very significantly. And then it all went belly up, really. Uh, it was Trump up to a point. Um, the, the real issues between uh, the US and China uh, became very, very important. And what we've seen is this. Downturn in trade growth to the point where it looks like last year, 2019, world trade in fact contracted. I mean, the forecasts were for about perhaps 1%, 1.2% growth, but latest indications are that perhaps we saw a fall in, in, in world trade. And if that is the case, of course, it's not surprising that the Eurozone isn't doing very well. Uh, We just had this point about how poorly they're doing, and indeed, Germany is not exporting as much to China as it would like to do. China has slowed down, partly because of this trade war. So there have been all sorts of things around us that have affected how we've done, and there is no doubt that the UK's growth has also been impacted by this. So we can't put it all to Brexit, and yet quite a lot of the work that's been done To try and take all these things out and calculate what we may have lost in terms of growth, productivity and so on, suggests that in fact the pain has been quite significant, about 3% less growth than would otherwise be the case and it would be worse by by the end of uh, this year when we reach the the point of uh, the end, if indeed that's what happens, the transition period, which Boris Johnson said he doesn't really want to change. So uh, the interesting thing for me is not Brexit has been bad for growth. It is How come we've grown as little as we have despite all the extra money that has been put in the economy in the UK over the last few years? And you've got to remember that in 2016, the only thing moving when the shock was there uh, that the country had voted to leave was the Bank of England, the much attacked Bank of England, which, of course, cut rates started quantitative easing, started a huge ejection of funds through term loans, subsidized term loans of something like £150 billion pounds worth, uh, took away some of the capital requirements of banks, so they had an extra £150 billion they could lend, and they did. All that, of course, slowly came to an end, because remember what happens when you do that, particularly if you have this term lending, which is risky, you never know whether you're going to get it back, is it adds to our... Uh, debt and the debt has been going up quite significantly uh, that size of uh, increase is exactly what uh, the, in addition to any extra borrowing that needed to be done uh, has been the, the extra bit that the, that the bank of been had to put into the economy which was not really uh, risk free at all uh, and therefore added to to our our borrowing. So tons and tons of money has been put into the economy that of course came to an end in February 2018 and Since then, the economy has seriously slowed down. We've seen manufacturing fall month after month after month in the last year, and the latest data was pretty bad, too. We've seen construction also uh, in trouble. We've seen the retail sector uh, going through terrible, terrible time. Uh, And uh, those are things that are difficult to reverse. And with it, of course, with investment productivity suffering, uh, we've actually ended up. With the odd quarter of contraction and possibly the last quarter of 2019 would have seen hardly any change at all in GDP or perhaps even small fall or a very small increase. But overall, we've stagnated. Now, the real question is not just spending all the time worrying about the past, but it does suggest, nevertheless, if you look at the past that there is something wrong with the economy in terms of the fact that it doesn't really respond to all this money being put in there, except temporarily, and something big has to give if we are to reverse what's happened. One of the big things, of course, that people are talking about is certainty. Maybe it's all changed. Maybe the latest data we've just seen, which is semi-encouraging, not the GDP data, which is negative in November, for example, uh, not the the, the PMIs in, in December, which were negative, That's the purchasing manager's indices. This means basically that the economy was contracting again. Uh, But some of the confidence that has suddenly reappeared. Uh, And if that confidence comes, then perhaps we'll get a little bit of investment. The question, of course, will be whether it's a debt cat sort of waking up temporarily, finding one of their extra lives, uh, or whether it's going to be something positive that remains. And I have to say that as economists, we probably don't know. Uh, But I would suspect that a lot of that improvement in uncertainty uh, going away and therefore business confidence is because businesses don't actually have now, uh, with complete certainty, Corbyn as Prime Minister. They were very worried about this. There's no doubt at all during the election uh, and before. They don't have that anymore. But the idea that all the uncertainty has been removed is pie in the sky, of course we 'll get a little bit of a bounce back we 've seen house prices suddenly you know, looking a little bit better uh, you know let 's see what no, PMIs are looking a little bit better in January as well, so a little bit more of that. But if you look at what businesses are doing, if you look at exports and demand, if you read underneath uh, the cbi 's latest uh, certain uh, confidence indicators, you will see that actually orders are still very low, both domestic and uh, foreign exports are suffering there isn't really the bounce back in the outside world that will guarantee at all that this uh, is sustained. So what needs to sustain it, I'm afraid and we're all going to have to pay for it as taxpayers, is huge amounts of money that will need to be spent in the economy. Cuts in uh, taxes, probably uh, for business. Already some of that has been announced for small firms relief of business rates, etc. etc all this is going to mount up. It would be very interesting since we talked about the Treasury. The Treasury was generally, as I know from my experience in government, just says, no, 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 and wants to cut everything. uh, How they will sustain this new, uh, you know, conversion into big spenders. Um, And Sajid Javid probably has sworn that he will do that to keep his job, of course, as as Chancellor of the Exchequer. Um, But the question is indeed whether that can be sustained. And also, how quickly the impact is. We talk about HS2. I suspect it will happen only so that we can demonstrate that we do care about the north or we do care about industry and industry has been lobbying so much if you just stop them from uh, spending, you know, having all that money spent on them, they will not like it at all, so confidence will go the other way, so probably do that. And, and frankly, it's such a long-term project, and by the time it seriously overruns, uh, the current players making the decisions won't be around, probably, so it would be us, or whoever it is, actually, I probably won't be around either. Uh, but those young people here who will swear about cancellations and things actually being, uh, being delayed uh, for so much. And, and in the meantime, we talked about the financial sector. There is no guarantee in industry about standards in the future and whether we will be following uh, what Europe does. because, remember, we uh, sell 45% of our goods and services to the EU, a lot less to everybody else. Um, This idea that we can go for standards where it helps us and we can do standardization with the EU and we won't on others leaves a huge area of uncertainty still in the economy. Look at the financial sector, which isn't even... Uh, certain, it's going to get even equivalence. I mean, remember, the rules that we helped draw, we in the UK, because, of course, we have a very strong financial sector, we didn't want anyone else to come and interfere with it, say that if you become a third country, you have no longer mutual recognition. You have equivalence if you're lucky. You mentioned Switzerland. Switzerland right now is going through hell because the EU has withdrawn equivalence, basically, and you can't, if you are a, a Swiss firm, now list in EU Stock exchanges, so, uh, and the EU has all the cards. We have none, uh, and that is the problem. They sell a certain amount to us, but not very much. So there will be huge amount of concern going ahead about those issues. But they could be overcome if there is greater clarity. I mean, Sajid Javi, the Chancellor, says one thing one day, which is we're not going to have regulatory element. I he says something completely different the next. So uh, we're going to have this volatility in all the time. Add to, the, add to that the very difficult trading environment out there. Uh, yes, there is some truce between the U.S. and China, but look at the impact the virus is already having on trade. Stock, stock markets are falling all around the world. People are worried if you don't get trouble, you don't get business, etc., etc. So, for us to conclude, leaving the EU at a time when we have lost productivity hugely over the last few years. And we have lost, therefore, competitiveness. We haven't <coughs> innovated sufficiently. We may have some fintech firms, uh, but it hasn't really uh, been translated into huge investment in w- new ways of doing things in business, which also, of course, uh, uh, can touch on the green agenda and so on. we were left behind batteries and so on. Uh, car manufacturers are already moving the next investment somewhere else, and they're very, very worried about this. With business itself not being listened to, has not been listened to at all during the last three years, and now front page of the Sunday Times saying that the business department has decided not to meet business that often any longer. They don't need them. It's not just experts that Michael Gove doesn't want, as far as I can see. It's anyone who tells them anything that they don't want to hear. On that basis, I would be quite pessimistic about both the short-term and... The medium and possibly the long term, but in the long term, as many people know in this room, particularly since they have studied that in economics we 're all dead Thank you,
0: Thank you very much. i don 't know about you, but I learned a lot of like brexit defies gravity. Um, Corbyn was a kind of blessing in disguise for the brexit campaign and um, you can't trust any estimate that comes out of the Treasury under the previous and present government. Um, interesting. So let me kick off just with one question and then I open to Q&A. We take it over in threes and then uh, I give the uh, floor to the, the, the panel here. We have several times looked at financial services. The question is whether, um, you know, A gravity equation really uh, captures digital services, whether that kind of neighborhood effect uh, really is important. Um, Gerard said the single market never functioned in services well. I mean, in financial services, you could say it had almost functioned a bit too well uh, in terms of interaction, integration that then spread over the whole uh, area. And it was very much... uh, formed under the influence of, of the British British government, successive British governments. So I want to ask you about financial services. I read today, Sajid Zan, uh, Javid, as you said, uh, Vicky, uh, first said, we want no alignment with the EU. In Davos, he seemed not to be quite so outspoken and says now, for the financial services, we want outcomes-based equivalents that... Just to let you know, the EU has never granted to the US. So one wonders a bit how good the chances of the UK are for this. But let me ask you this: there was a survey apparently just recently about senior of senior financial managers what they see as the most important financial centre, and um, they went from 53% a year ago said it is. London, the city of London, and next is, is uh, New York, it's now only a third of them says this, a drop of 19%, uh, and it is clearly now New York. It's also not one of the EU countries that has tried to get that status. So my, I wonder, do you think, is that good or bad news for the UK that the city of London is basically put in its place and may shrink after Brexit?
2: Who wants to start? But given your question is so loaded, can I come back? Um, actually, um, since, the financial cri- uh, since the referendum, the City of London has continued to see net new investment. There's more people employed in the City of London now than a few years ago. At the time of the referendum in 2016, the two big worries then in the city were Euro clearing and passporting. Both of those worries are far less now than they were then. Now, I'm not necessarily going to go into all the detail, but I'm sure most of you are aware. And if not, you can find it out. But let's take um, passporting. Passporting in its current format came into effect in 2007. Before 2007, the City of London was the major financial centre of Europe. It still is. Passporting in itself, in retail financial services, isn't such a big issue because the reality is most people buy retail financial services in the home country in which they live. There is some, but there's not much cross-border retail financial services. It's really about wholesale financial services. And there the key issue is that prior to 2007, people came to London to do the business. Because the skills, the knowledge, the experience, and indeed the sunk costs were already there. They're still there now, hence the figure I quoted when I spoke about 1,400-odd firms up to last, in the year to last October seeking to base themselves in London. Obviously, it depends on your business model. Some firms will need to have representation in EU countries. They will do that. Likewise, some firms in the EU will want to have representation in London. So it depends on your business model at the end of the day. Dublin and Luxembourg, in terms of certain aspects of financial services, will cement their current position. So they might have a bigger slice of the cake, but that cake will get bigger. The chairlady lady mentioned New York. New York highlights the real opportunity and challenge at the same time and helps explain the position that the Chancellor is taking. Namely, to compete internationally, you need to compete with the financial centres such as New York, Hong Kong, hopefully still after its recent troubles, Singapore, maybe Shanghai in the future. And indeed, what's happening in New York is some of the plans put in place, or being talked about rather, prior to the financial crisis, and which were then put on hold, are now back on the agenda about making New York more competitive. So London needs to actually not only cement its current position, it needs to address those global challenges. One issue, just to conclude, that we haven't talked about that's relevant, is migration. One in eight people who works in the City of London is an EU national from outside the UK. Hence, one of the big issues in the City of London is about migration policy. Migration policy has been unclear in the last few years. Migration policy is now starting to evolve. Uh, for some bizarre reason, politicians in this country have always been it seems afraid to talk about migration. Now, thankfully, we've, we're getting maturity coming to the debate. But in terms of what's being proposed at the moment, the message out of the city seems to be rather, uh, uh, I would say, rather receptive to what's being proposed by the government. But I think that's one of the big areas that needs to be fully addressed in terms of migration policy, because that's an important part of the city's future. So I'm pretty positive about the city. But as I said, at the end of the day, it depends on where clients want to do business, and it will depend on what the regulators do as well.
3: Vicky? Um, I'm very surprised that uh, Joe seems to think that the city is is quite... um, Content with the way that migration is developing i don 't think they are at all uh, and of course you 're quite right, even the fintech area that you mentioned you were so proud of depends hugely on on people coming from the outside. The one thing that 's changing is uh the realization that uh, if you put a very high bar on the the, the wages that people uh, can um, can have uh, before they 're allowed to work here then the, whether they 're you or not then um uh, that really kills a number of sectors and that seems to be changing and hopefully we're going to see that being reduced uh, so, so that will be an improvement but of course the financial sector pays quite well generally uh, although some of the new startups perhaps uh, perhaps don't uh, but the, the problem with the migration policy right now is that there is a real belief and what did Priti Patel say? She said UK businesses Priti Patel the Home Secretary are uh, in charge of immigration um, But who knows what's going to happen, of course, because it's going to be a reshuffle and uh, uh, machinery of government changes taking place. But she's probably going to be secure in her job, um, although even that job may change. So anyway, for the moment, she's Home Secretary. And she said just over the weekend that UK businesses have become too reliant on cheap labor from the EU. I mean, the interesting thing is that labor from the EU has tended to be considerably higher skilled on average in every sector than... UK labour. And the interesting thing is that because they have come in, they have raised the skill levels and therefore productivity in each of those sectors and would otherwise have been the case. If you go out and say, you know, so firmly, so it's fine on the one hand to say, you know, perhaps we will review a few things, but if that is the message you give to to industry, and you say also things like Sajid did, you've had three years to get prepared, so what are you complaining about, businesses, when of course they didn't know what they had to be prepared for. No deal, deal, alignment, non-alignment. When this year, next year, you know, uh, in October, in whenever, uh, that makes life uh, incredibly difficult uh, in terms of planning. So, clarity there actually may help, except that that clarity may not be very positive clarity in terms of ensuring that some of the benefits that we get at present remain.
1: Okay, so um, I'm, I think Vicky makes excellent points on immigration. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm really surprised to hear uh, Mr. Lyons say that. You know, we don't talk about immigration in this country. My entire life, I've, people have been banging on about immigration nonstop, as far well as I can tell, Politician. in politics and everywhere else. And you know, as Vicky says, I mean, a great tragedy of what's happened during Brexit is that the real you know, economic suffering that people in this country have had to put up with the lower real wages that we have compared to price, before the financial crisis, the low productivity, the, you know, the punishment that people have had to suffer onto austerity. That, that anger, people have has been felt, has been redirected by the Leave campaign towards immigrants, towards distrust <laughs> and dislike of foreigners. And in terms of the European Union, as Vicky says, the European, people in the European Union have been paying more in taxes than they've taken out in services. They've been subsidizing the, the, uh, the National Health Service and other services the British Board had. So I think that, you know, that's, that's the general context, the specific context in terms of the city. You know, as Vicky said, that's absolutely right that um, the issue is going to be that if there are, as there's likely to be, serious restrictions on immigration, this is going to be a problem for all um, Services, including services offered by the City of London, um, free movement of labour has been a great boon in that in that respect. And unlike uh, Mr. Lyons, the people I talk to in the city, like people I know, the, the head of the equity trading desk at Barclays, they're ready to move out of London to. Uh, other places in Europe immediately. Many other places are waiting to see what happens and what's very likely to happen is some degree of increased friction. The passporting thing is still there and there will be a movement of activity outside the, outside the city of London, outside the financial service sectors to other, other centres of Europe. There will be less foreign direct investment. You asked, is that a good thing or a bad thing? You know, some people say it was a good thing. These horrible high-wage people driving up house price and everything else and there will be some readjustment. On the other hand, uh, if you look at where taxation revenues come from, a big fraction of that comes from the financial services sector. Um, you know, you could say they might be bastards, but there are bastards. So I think that you know stabbing you know, stabbing the city in the heart is not a great is not a is not a is not a great idea. I'd like to say one final thing though. Ger- you know, Ms. Lyons can be talking about jobs. And you know, the the forecast that I focus on the national income forecast, the GDP forecast. It's useful to think of that as the overall size of the economy. Now, of course, you know, that breaks down between employment and the wages people get and the investment which happens. And what's happened is that although the employment numbers have been better than some people forecast, the wages that people have had and investment has been worse. And as Vicky said, I mean, this country... Um, The model that we developed in this country of low-wage, insecure, precarious employment is not the model that we need to have to go forward. So boasting about how many jobs we have, and so many of those jobs are low-quality jobs, precarious jobs and low-wage sectors, is not the economic model that I want.
2: Okay, can I just come, you, come back? You get a chance, you yeah. get no. a chance. I, no, I think it's important in the, the data. There
0: will okay. be more questions on this, otherwise we yeah. really don't get any Q&A. Can we start with three questions? And not everybody has to answer everything, so I would like to have this person in the middle here. And then this gentleman here, and then
1: Thank you very much for a very interesting discussion tonight. We've talked a lot about London and about the City of London in particular, but the votes for Brexit in 2016 mostly came from outside of London, in particular up north. What's in it for them um,
4: after this Friday?
0: Then the gentleman in front here.
2: Um, Thank you all for speaking. Um, There's been a clear dovish tilt by the MPC so far this year and there's talk of a rate cut on Thursday. Michael Saunders has been quoted in saying it's to deal with the slow puncture of the economy. How do you think the MPC will react this year with um, a different type of Brexit uncertainty and does that differ to your own view of what you think they should be doing?
4: Can you pass this on? (coughs) Thank you. Ursula von der Leyen said, no freedom of movement no freedom for people, no freedom of movement for goods, uh, capital, and services. How are we going to square this obsessive desire with creating a giant new immigration bureaucracy with that core statement? And I assume she's speaking authoritatively on behalf of the EU. No freedom of movement for people, no freedom of movement for goods, capital, services. And Gerard, uh, you said that Project Fear predicted huge job losses. Well, I've just looked up the LSE, Inst- European Institute's prognosis for 2016, and says, nevertheless, there are some areas where Brexit could see an increase in jobs, some import-creating industries which can be expected to see job increases. It really is a myth to say everybody at the time, and I wrote a book on it, and I've written another book here, which I hope you'll all buy, Eternity. thank you for the plug, uh, <laughs> uh, made very clear... It would be varied. We don't know. That's for sure. So please don't keep talking about Project Fear predicting this when, in fact, the LSE in 2016 said something completely different.
0: Uh, Vicky, could you take this first question about votes for Brexit came mainly from outside? So what will that mean for London,
3: I suppose? Uh, Well, what will it mean for London? I mean, uh, there was a time, of course, during the whole Brexit, uh, since since the, uh, the vote... Uh, well, London was almost thinking of uh, uh, sort of declaring UDI, in other words, sort of, we are so different and we voted so differently to the rest of England. Um, we should also have our own um, uh, immigration policy. And so on. So, in fact, uh, you know, people produce sort of papers on what you can do uh, for London alone. And, but you're absolutely right. There was a, a huge disparity between that. There are loads of big cities, of course, we, which were like London, voted quite significantly. And, uh, and I have to admit that, that uh, you know, perhaps we didn't quite see what was going on outside. I mean, where I live in London, Lambeth, was the highest, the highest uh, of nearly 80%. And we were the second highest after Gibraltar, I think, which was 99.999%, and as I said before, I think they're still looking for the one person who voted against against it. And uh, But, but we, it did sort of obscure a little bit, although I was going around to look, do lots of talks everywhere, and I was coming back quite sort of depressed, but what is being suggested now, of course, by by the government is to, to really reverse that and make sure that all these northern areas um, benefit. And, and we've already seen... Um, Uh, their willingness to support Fly B on regional issues. Remember, lots of people worry about, I don't know where the question came from, lots of people worry about state aid and say you can't actually do what they did with Fly B and it's been referred to to the EU anyway in terms of giving it support. But actually, uh, you can do various things for the regions which are allowed under... Uh, and uh, uh, state aid. And, of course, we've always, since I was working for the government for a while, used state aid as a nice excuse for not giving any money to, to places. But what, what happened during the entire, uh, well, since the coalition came to power in the last 10 years, really, is that money going to the regions was reduced very significantly. So the RDAs were abolished, the regional development agencies. They were replaced by something called LEPS, which were local enterprise uh, partnerships, whatever it was called, uh, which basically... Uh, we're bringing together various interested parties from uh, particular areas, redefined boundaries. They didn't quite know what they were doing necessarily, and they got very little money for quite some time. It takes a long time for that to be reversed, and loads of those areas that voted to leave, of course, uh, are affected by the manufacturing decline that's taken place that I mentioned, and are going to be very exposed to competition. Uh, out there, when everyone uh, undercuts everybody else, and, and, and the environment is so much more difficult. So, uh, I think because of the north uh, because of the concerns of those regions that we are going to get some of the infrastructure spending uh, happening but the impact on those regions will be so long to be felt uh, that it's almost a waste of money really and a waste of time so uh, I think there is very, there could be you know, it could be interpreted as as something positive on this but unless there is a massive redistribution which is going to really affect London very negatively and after all London funds the rest uh, we're just not going to to uh, see the impact on the North happening and I think people will get very disillusioned. John, could you take the
0: second question on how will the economy react uh, to the next shocks?
1: This is the thing about what's the MPC going interest to do? Rates.
0: Yeah. Oh, okay, MPC. I didn't quite understand it. Um,
1: okay, so I, I, there, were three que- there were kind of three questions. So, um, you know, on the, on the MPC, I don't know. I've got no idea. I mean, uh, I expect, you know, the economy is not going to perform policy fantastically. Quantity. Uh, so it's quite likely that interest rates are going to stay low um, to deal with that deal with that problem. The the first question, you know, I mean, i just want to correct one slight thing. You, know, you say people up north voted for Brexit. There's a coalition for Brexit. A lot of the you know, a lot of the people who voted for Brexit were kind of traditional conservative people in you know, in, in the rural, relatively wealthy home, home counties. So it's not just the up north people, as uh, as pejoratively said. What, what will what will you know, what will happen? I mean, you know, they're going to be worse off. I mean, people in, the sad thing: people in Sunderland, for example, the Nissan car factory is is located, are likely to be worse off as more activity moves outside of those particular areas. So it's actually the opposite of um, sadly the case that uh, a lot of the people in that um, that the group of people in. Uh, in the labor areas are going to be a lot worse off thanks to Brexit. I just want to say one thing about, you know, project fear. I'm glad you kind of raised this. So uh, Gerald, you know, Ms. Lines also talked about this bleating about project fear and, you know, is a substitute for proper thinking and analysis of kind of what, what happened. You know, there wasn't a um, – the, the, the workers, as was said by the LSE, by most other organizations, there was a very strong consensus over these medium and long-run effects to be negative where there was more disagreement. In fact, the Treasury, the Treasury had two documents. One document, which is about the medium-run effect, and that was totally in line with everybody else. I, I, when you're talking about the gravity, well, the gravity model is an equilibrium model. It's, an, it's a general equilibrium model. That's the model which the Treasury uses and what we use. So this, it's, it's actually, it's, you know, you obviously don't understand what those models are if you're thinking they're completely different models. I'm sorry. Um, so, you know, the, 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 the Treasury's basic issue uh, was they, of course, you know, George Osborne, uh, I, I'm, I, you know, I've been one of his greatest critics. The uh, short-run aspect was, you know, deliberately there to show there was going to be some, short, some short-term vector effects, and that's where those very big job loss numbers came up, and that was totally unreliable. So the short-term Treasury forecast was extremely bad. The medium-run Treasury forecast was totally part of the overwhelming consensus that this uh, slow uh, slow drip of harm to the British economy is uh, you know, going to happen over the next 10 to 20 years.
2: Yeah, thank you. Uh, the first question uh, the National Statistics Office. Uh, um, covers the UK by looking at 12 regions. Of those 12 regions, three voted remain, Northern Ireland, Scotland and London. The other nine regions voted leave, Wales and the eight regions of England outside London. Those eight regions of England outside London from 1975 in the first referendum to the 2016 referendum moved from the, being the most Euro-enthusiastic to the most sceptic. That issue is now starting to receive academic interrogation. But when one looks at it, a number of issues come to the fore. One is public spending. If you had the UK as an average of 100, uh, Northern Ireland is 121, so 21% per person more than the UK average. Scotland's 119, um, Wales and London about 118. Southeast of England's 90, Southwest is 90, East of England is 91, East Midland's 91. So one aspect is more spending. Another aspect is actually regulation comes to the fore. It's interesting about regulation Um, Small and medium-sized firms basically don't really complain about particular regulations. They complain about the whole scale, the monumental size of regulations. So what one's seen, say, in Northeast has been mentioned, um, free ports is now coming more and more to the fore. But one of the big issues that comes out in the academic work is who represents them. When you ask people in London, does Westminster represent them, they say Yes. When you ask people in the rest of England, on average, they say no. Hence, you've got a cross-party constitutional group under Lord Salisbury being set up. So the whole issue is about devolution at the end of the day. And Tony Travers might be here. He was here earlier. He did some excellent work for the – sorry, he's down in the front row. Um, He did some work for the former mayor of London and probably for the current one about – the London devolution agenda. And there's lots of arguments about transferring that or indeed interpreting it in a different way across the country. So all of these issues come to the fore. There's no reason to think these regions will be poorer. If one looks at what the pre- current Japanese ambassador to the UK said a few months ago on the record, apart from Honda, he was highlighting how other Japanese auto sector firms were looking to invest more for our and d reasons in the UK. It's quite interesting. So let's see what happens at the end of the day. In terms of the last thing about... In terms of project fear, look, the reality is when one went across the country, the figure that people talked about was 500,000 job losses. You might not have believed it from the LSC, partly because the LSC didn't say that, but that was a key message. So people did fear the job losses. You, 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 I know, Dennis, you reinvent the wheel in terms of the data, but.
4: Uh,
2: Sorry it was the key issue. Lose, if, if this was one of the big issues that came to the fore in the referendum. India, but in terms of forward um,
0: looking. Forward, lines, for,
2: look right. forward looking, it comes into the second question as well. To actually get domestic policy right is like three legs on the stool. Each leg needs to carry its weight fully for the domestic economy to do well. One is the supply side agenda, one is fiscal policy the devolution agenda and I agree with what Vicky was saying earlier on that front and the other is monetary financial policy. The ECB is having a reassessment of its remit the Fed is having a reassessment of its remit I think it makes sense for the Bank of England at some stage hopefully soon to have a reassessment of its remit but as John said um, rates will probably stay low and remain low for some time Thank you.
0: Okay, I'll go for the next round and would like to see whether there's anybody up in the
5: cheap seats. Yes, (laughs) there's
1: that. All the seats are cheap.
0: (laughs) Some are cheaper than others.
5: Thank you very much. Um, This is for Dr. Gerard. Um, You've spoken a lot about the UK economy post referendum, so that's up until now rather than the medium-long-term impact of Brexit. Um, You also speak about huge uncertainty that this country has faced, mainly brought about because the people that voted Leave in 2016 didn't know what sort of Brexit they were voting for, so whether that was in the single market or out of the single market, Canada-style, etc. I think it's all very well saying that the economy has not collapsed since 2016, But that is because we have been in the single market and the customs union. We will continue to be in the single market and the customs union until the 31st of December of this year. I don't think EU or British firms investing in this country would have possibly imagined that the UK government would inflict medium and long-term damage on the UK economy and its people. I don't think it's fully clear what kind of Brexit the government will be negotiating, but it's looking more and more like a hard, low-alignment model. I really want to hear from you what the impact of this will be post 31st December 2020. And I'm talking about on-the-ground impact, so price of food, wages, things that are going to affect normal people.
0: Perhaps we can also ask the question, what kind of Brexit do you think uh, this government will, will seek? Uh, any more? This is your chance. Then we have somebody on here.
6: Yes? A lot of people actually said that they wanted sovereignty back and they were even prepared to pay the cost of, more so, uh, of uh, gaining sovereignty. So my question is, what are the costs that we are prepared to pay uh, to get our sovereignty back? And I wondered... To what extent they were prepared to no longer be cared for by Eastern European labor, but possibly by nobody at all? To what extent they were prepared to care for? No longer, or to to, to pay for no longer having cut up lettuce in plastic packages from their local supermarkets, and to what extent they were prepared to pay for having fewer models of Volvo cars, which is what the FT on the top right hand corner suggested to us today. So, what are the costs that people are prepared to pay for um, having sovereignty back? Because that was also heavily. Emphasized.
4: EU, migrants that, were, um, EU my, migrants that were about to leave the country were mentioned. Does
6: it, leave, does it mean that non-EU migrants will come and take their uh, working
0: places and how is that going to affect the country's economy? I take the last question for our other panellists, but there was the first question for you, Gerard, uh, on what kind of Brexit and what impact will it have on the ground?
2: Um, I thought it was asked in a very patronising way, to be quite frank, the question, um, implying people didn't know what they were talking about. It was quite clear in many respects what people were voting for. Um, Leaving the single market, leaving the customs union was mentioned so often. It was um, unbelievable. But um, people vote at the end of the day for lots of... People vote for lots of different reasons. Um, most of the research afterwards showed that people voted sovereignty first, migration second, the economy third, in which NHS other aspects came into the fore. So, um, at the end of the day, A Clean Brexit, which is a book I co-authored with Liam Hannigan, um, which The Economist recommended as well, so it appeals to remainers as well as leavers, talks about many of these issues. At the end of the day, the UK does need to actually invest more. And it links into your question and the second question. Um, One of the issues that was mentioned at the weekend was the lack of investment in skills and training in the UK. Now I would imagine that the government hopes um, I've not obviously I'm not anything to do with the government, but I imagine one of the things they're hoping for is that there will be more investment by firms in the skills and training of their staff here in the UK as a consequence of a points-based migration system, but we'll see how that goes. So I think one should be positive. At the end of the day, the UK is distancing itself from the EU, but we want to have a sensible future relationship with the EU. But the EU faces some big challenges, like the UK, about how we rebalance ourselves in the changing, growing global economy. If you look at the last decade, it's not just the West versus the rest. Within the West, the US is growing at a rapid pace compared to Western Europe. Western Europe, including the UK, needs to reposition itself in the changing, growing global economy. And if we get the incentives right and we start to invest more and get other things right, then that will start to address some of the concerns people have raised. Thank you.
4: John?
1: Well, I think you should consider apologising to the young lady for for accusing her of being Mm -hmm. patronising. I think it's... No. It's absolutely absolutely ridiculous it's not patronizing to ask the question when people were voting in the 2016 referendum were they really fully aware of all the ramifications of the things that they were voting for leading brexiters were saying there's no chance of leaving the single market like daniel Hanna. there were many people that leaving the single market leaving the customs union were not on the ballot paper and it would only have taken a few percentage of people who to move the other way if they thought really what was offered was this hardest of the hard brexit which your former, um, uh, you know, the former person you advised, who's now the uh, Prime Minister, um, is, is, is pushing. You know, I, I think it's absolutely outrageous. The attack on democracy from, from suspending Parliament, which has to be overruled by the Supreme Court, the unending litany of lies that we had to put up with during a referendum, and not just lies on that bus, but the contempt which we were treated with, that the lies continued, Just as you know the Prime Minister lied when he was a journalist and has continued to lie about things which have come out of uh, Brussels, he continues to do so. And you know, I think we have to realise what we're up against here. This is, Brexit is just the, the vanguard where we are of a general assault against reason and facts, the things which this institution was built on, are the things we have to, have, I'm afraid, we have to fight for very hard over the next five or ten years under the, uh, under the attacks that the Brexiteers, like some of our friends here, are going to do. So, you know, let, let me, let, let also let's take on this, this other... You know, there is a, there is a view um, that people were fully aware, the rational voter view is sometimes called in economics. So people knew that there was going to be a cost... To voting for Brexit, and they paid the money, and they wanted to get greater sovereignty, and that's what we were doing. That's a view. It happens to be totally wrong. If you look at uh, opinion polls of so what um, Leave voters uh, said, they thought they would be better off, or at least no worse off, on the Brexit. So it wasn't the view that they knew they would like. Uh, Aaron Banks, who said, "You know, ten thousand pounds would be a small price to pay for Brexit," which is all very well if you're a multimillionaire like him, but not quite so well if you're a kind of car worker in Sunderland. Most most Leave voters were not taking the view that they were going to have some more sovereignty uh, in return for more economic costs. That's just factually incorrect. And you know, I I, you know, in terms of the sovereignty, one thing to say. I mean, you know, I I respect people who say that they want sovereignty, but sovereignty is not like a binary thing. It's not like I'm you know totally sovereign or not sovereign. The European Union, like many other international organisations that we live in, is like a club. You know, we join that club, we pay some membership fee for that club, and we give up some sovereignty in return for both greater prosperity and a chance to deal with the kind of global problems that we're all, that we're all facing, the global problems of climate change, of, uh, of different types of new technology, and the kind of real risk of military conflict, which is what Europe had to suffer for centuries um, before the generation of the European Union. So I think, you know, we really are in this, you know, This kind of battle right now, and uh, you know, the you know, I'm particularly sad, um, as many of us are, with what's happening during this week. But what we have to do is, you know, look forward to resisting what's uh, been happening around us, and uh, to try and fight against that assault on truth and reason that Brexit represents.
0: Vicky, can you particularly take up this migration question that hasn't been fully addressed?
3: I will, but really I'd like to address it in the wider context, given what we've just been discussing. Because, again, going back to the original question, to the first question up there, uh, there's not enough clarity as to how we're going to end up and therefore what the implication for the economy will be. I mean, right now, as we know, suddenly there, there is a big argument about whether we will impose um, tariffs against cars coming from the EU if they insist on having access to our fishing rights. So, you know, the, the, the French are arguing, and we, we seem to be counter-arguing, uh, threatening to impose all sorts of tariffs, which, of course, can't be particularly useful for the car industry looking forward in terms of um, of investing. And, and although a uh, journalists seem to think that it's all happening and they all really want to, to invest more, the reality is there are loads of manufacturing uh, uh, intentions and investment intentions have ja- now have already been announced, and they are mostly for leaving the UK. So they've stopped plans that they intended to to start and moving it back to Japan and so on. So uh, that's an issue, and of course it affects the types of people we're going to be using. Uh, but obviously, if there's less demand for particular types of skills, we perhaps can do with sort of fewer people coming in because the the idea we're going to train people. It's quite interesting because as the question was asked. Uh, I just looked at the latest uh, CBI, business optimism thing. And, of course, that looks forward, okay? Uh, and, yes, they, they, they intend to perhaps invest a bit more in plant and machinery than they had done before. Remember, it was negative before. They intend to invest a little bit more, so we see where it makes it positive overall. But their training and retraining expenditure uh, the, 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 is the same. In other words, negative um, as it was before. So no indication at present that they intend to train people to replace uh, all those people that uh, perhaps are not going to be coming in from the EU. Um, but if you look at the migration policy at present, it really makes very little sense because uh, migration from the EU, as we know, is now the lowest level in 10 years uh, because people are net migration. People have just decided not to come or to go back. Um, That, of course, affects the skill level, as we discussed earlier. Whereas migration from outside the EU, people who, of course, have loads of skills and a lot to contribute, but generally are less employed than is the case with the EU, has gone up very significantly. So this is an area that we control, where we have complete sovereignty, and yet we let it be incredibly high. So so that gives me optimism. Um, And the optimism is... If you can't control what you've already been able to control in the past, what makes you think you're going to control the things you were not controlling in the past, if you see what I mean? <laughs> so so uh, instead of being doomed in this area, I think we're going to be flooded, if anyone wants to come, uh, by all these Europeans who find it actually you know, a, a great opportunity to come here. But of course they may decide not to come, because those opportunities may just not be here. And that's the real worry that I have. And overall, in terms of businesses' readiness and what they intend to do, the truth is that big firms have been able to adjust already. Even though they had no great certainty, they've spent a lot of money, relocated various things. They may not have relocated lots of people, but any increase in investment has happened outside the UK, uh, in the financial sector as well. And those who still want to come, and I think it's interesting what you said about uh, the city before. In the Telegraph today, or yesterday, There was a big article about the requirements of the large financial institutions from the outside coming to the UK, which already include a request to scrap um, the bank levy that was imposed during the financial crisis, which is quite painful for them, um, and to scrap a bank surcharge that had been put into them so they wouldn't benefit from the cut cut in corporation tax that were paid on, on others. So the demands are already beginning. If you want us here, it's going to cost you. So the question of what costs are we prepared to take, who's going to pay for this? The taxpayer, of course. Who's going to pay for the north, uh, to, to which I think we should to a considerable extent, uh, all the money that wasn't spent before? It's the taxpayer. So that has not actually been included in whatever it is that people were told, that we're leaving, yes, the cost of this and that, but they haven't been told what huge cost in terms of taxpayers' payments. Uh, is going to involve as well.
0: We have time for one or two last questions, gentlemen here, and at the way back because we had none there. Yeah, sorry.
4: Shall I? And then
0: short answers, please.
4: So the first question is on the sensible relationship for the future. So it's a bit difficult to understand whether uh, the joy of the market comes from getting rid of Corbyn or actually um, a bet on the Singapore-upon themes. But let's say it's also the Singapore-upon themes that will come <laughs> next. How can you square it with the good old-fashioned economics that you were talking about before? Um, because I guess uh, when Ursula von der Leyen was here uh, at the beginning of January, she said zero tariffs, zero quotas, but in particular zero dumpings. Um, so how will these all come together?
0: And then the last question. Um,
6: this is a question I've just been curious about for a while. I've not heard a response, uh, 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 an answer to it. After we leave the EU, uh, but before we negati- have negotiated and in place trade deals with. Various other countries around the world we sit in a no man 's land i don 't understand how that operates i 'd like someone to explain that
0: Thank you uh, Shall we go in the order of the panel here Vicky, would you start and then Gerard
3: and John. Well that's a bit unfair that was a really difficult question. Uh, so you will need to to think a little no, no, bit. No about no 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 I, I I don't have the answer really but so it's quite simple from that point of view. Then can I was hoping sure. that others wouldn't have the answer either first or would have. There was also another question. No no of course of course I will I will I will touch on it uh, nevertheless. Well I mean Singapore on temps which is really what you're saying. I mean the interesting thing is that quite a lot of people have been talking about this but uh, if you look at what the regulator uh, in the UK is saying so the the um, uh, the head of the Prudential Regulation Authority, uh, has just issued a statement saying that actually um, our banks are, too, are regulated in two lakhs a way and we're going to, if you really think that, that we're going to uh, uh, make life easier, quite the opposite, we're going to regulate more uh, strongly. So it isn't going to happen on the, on the banking side. I would be absolutely astonished uh, if we suddenly eased our regulatory framework uh, although, of course, Marconi has said, um, now of, when we leave, we certainly don't want to be regulated by by Europe. Uh, but so far, we haven't been regulated by Europe. We've resisted all sorts of things, but we have had the the, the the mutual recognition. So whatever we were doing was accepted because we were members of the EU, and there were frequent discussions and so on. So, so uh, if you look at all the other aspects, the idea that you can reduce regulation in one area uh, when you're really depending dependent quite considerably on uh, uh, trade with the EU, as I said before, is a very substantial part, nearly half of what we do. Um, uh, And while you're trying to negotiate with one, this is the interesting thing about the question at the back, uh, with one uh, uh, possible trading partner, the US, uh, and you are not very clear about what types of um, uh, regulation you're going to have with the other trading partner. First of all, you can't negotiate in any sensible way until all that's sorted out. Uh, And second, you just won't get the concessions that you want if you start dumping. In other words, sort of reduce your... Uh, your own regulations in order to compete which simply the EU isn't going to accept so they talk about level playing fields and everything else what you can do is play around with the words Uh, Boris Johnson is very good at that he's probably going to find some sort of way of actually saying we have conceded completely but actually we haven't conceded so it's probably what's going to happen and I'm sincerely hoping that this uh, suddenly some logic and rationality will will creep into our to our politics. Uh, What happens in terms of trade, and now the real uh, person who knows a lot about trade is is Gerald, who was doing a lot of work um, abroad. But of course, you continue to trade. Uh, But the question is, on what terms? Uh, And those we don't know. So again, if you look at the car manufacturing sector or anyone else, if they don't know what will happen, they will do the bit for the domestic economy. And what has happened already, I have to say, is there's been a little bit of, of, of insuring, of supply chains, and so on, um, but only a very small amount. Uh, so there's still going to be this huge uncertainty as to how you can bring in components and do various things, and that's going to, I think, lead to the, sh- uh, the, the, the bounce back that we're seeing right now being very short-lived unless we have some serious certainty. In that one. So, Chair, how will it look like in this yeah. no-man's
2: Thank you. Well, the first question um, was talking about the different trade-offs in terms of the Singapore model. I think the answer to that is that, first and foremost, the government... Um, and I think you implied this, needs to make clear what its vision is, its direction of travel. I think it needs to do that sooner rather than later. Obviously, the data shows, of the UK firms, 8% of UK firms sell directly into the single market. They account for 12% of the UK GDP, so they're big firms. But a vast bulk of firms do not sell into the single market, and that's even allowing for supply chains. So there are different issues at play here. But I don't think there's necessarily a trade-off because maybe reiterating the point I made about those three legs on the stool, supply side policy is important, fiscal policy is important, but monetary and financial policy. So they all will play their weight in the future. I think the UK approach, obviously politics is going to play a big issue. Um, Vradka, the Taoiseach this morning, um, made the important point that the UK had... um, in his view, sort of thought it was individual nations rather than the Commission uh, that was the key to talk to. So I think the UK needs to get that sort of aspect of its next stage. Right. But the UK has lots of things to trade off as well as, and is in a strong position, not just on defence. Like of the 28 EU countries, the only one that meets the two international commitments they all commit to of 2% of spending of GDP on defence and 0.7% on international aid is the UK. The UK has a very strong global appeal, and we need to start getting that vision and message out. Um, just maybe the last point... Um, Actually, I was just going to say, on um, well, um, the CBI survey did swing a lot. It was a 43% swing, so it was the biggest swing in recent history. So there are things that are improving, but I agree with you. We need to spend more on training and skills. But maybe just to finish, look, in 1975, the country had a referendum. What was interesting, and I was at school at the time, but the day after it, and you can go back and look at this, Those people who were on the losing side, and some of them were members of the Labour government at the time, the day after accepted the result and said, look, we voted to go in, we didn't agree with it, but we're going to fight on what's best for the UK. I find it quite amazing people accuse Brexiteers, whoever they are, of being anti-democratic. We had the biggest vote in our democratic history in 2016. The last three years we've had a political crisis... And you can say who's to blame for it in your own mind, but it has not been helped by a failure, and it seems to be still the case, of people to accept the result. I think after this Friday, when we actually leave the political structures of the EU, I would actually hope that people are sensible and start arguing collectively for what's best for the UK, rather than continuing to try and refight the referendum over and over again. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Singapore on 10. So one of the delusions of the uh, Brexiteers is that somehow, you know, the the solution is going to be this mass deregulation in the United Kingdom. We're held back by our onus regulations. I mean, if you look at... What the OECD or other international organizations say, Britain is a very lightly regulated country, um, as we have the freedom to do when we're in the European Union. So, for example, our labor regulations are one of the lightest in in, in the European Union. And the idea of this bonfire of regulation that's somehow going to light up the economy is is total fantasy. Secondly, on trade deals, um, again, there's this other kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, another kind of delusion of grandeur, thinking we're back in the days of empire. Uh, when we sit down as we are to do a, a deal with the US, we are in a much weaker bargaining position than we would be if we are in the European Union. The European Union is the biggest single market on earth, $90 trillion, half a billion people. The UK is much smaller. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, a fifth, it's like I'm asking someone for a date and I'm five, I'm, the other guy's five times as good-looking as me. Who's going to guess the best date? It's not going to be me, I'm afraid. And it's similar to when Britain sits down with these, these very other, other very large countries. It's in a much weaker bargaining position, and I'm afraid the deal we're going to get is going to, be, uh, is going to be very much worse for all these countries than it would have been had we stayed in the European Union and taken advantage of the other deals which the European Union is doing with other countries. And then... Finally, let, let me say, you know, on a on a on a on a personal note, you know, my, uh, um, you know, my my father died twenty years ago. He was a political refugee from South Africa who came over with his father, um, and uh, you know, I'd say this week ran, you know, after that w- week twenty years ago when he died. This is probably the saddest uh, time of my life, having to leave the European Union, being ripped out of the European Union. You know, the biggest vote. We're the biggest population we've ever been. Of course we're the biggest, but with more people. It's like the record amount of spending we have, because we're the the biggest economy we've we've been. It's absolute fatuous. 25% of the population voted for Brexit. 30% of the eligible population voted for Brexit. For rupturing our position with uh, the relationship we've had with the European Union for half a century, Um, it was an obligation, a moral and democratic obligation to give us a chance to vote in reality and what the options were in front of us, and this has been denied us as a people that's a profoundly undemocratic act and you know I weep for the country for not having had that and all this come by our stuff which uh, Mr Li offers us uh, i'm sorry there's going to be from my personal perspective there's going to be no come by our moment. Um, we are, as I said, in the resistance of. The attack that is happening with Trump, with other um, authoritarians in other parts of the world against um, a post-truth type of society where reality and facts and reason are denigrated (laughs) and democracy is undermined. I'm not going to give up the fight against that. My daughter is not going to give up the fight against that. Her children won't give up the fight against that. And we'll be resisting the forces which are trying to undermine democracy and reason and the values of the LSE for as long as I live and as long as my children are alive. Thank you.
0: On whichever side of the debate you are, I think on that one we can agree. Uh, I think Gerard would also say he fights for the, the truth, and we should respect that. I thank you all for coming. Um, if you need another fix this week, on Friday with Vicky, there is more to come. Thank you all very much for coming and joining me in thanking the panel.